I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. She was a tomboy in a skirt, because that's how we were raised in skirts and dresses. She was into sports, science, video gaming, for sure. She was a comedian, a really dry sense of humor. Like only certain people could catch on. Intellectual people could catch mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she was really cool. She was like a rainbow, and her you can tell because her friends were rainbows. She had friends from all over and all types of friends. I'm Amber Carr, a Tatiana Jefferson, who was shot and killed by police in Fort Worth, Texas. She's my baby sister. My name is Ashley Carr, the sister of Tatiana. And we're a part of the Say Her Name Mother's Network. Atatiana Jefferson! Atatiana Jefferson! Atatiana Jefferson! Atatiana Jefferson! Atatiana Jefferson! Atatiana Jefferson. Since 2019, when Atatiana Jefferson was killed by police in Texas, we've been saying her name. The officer who killed her, Aaron Dean, is on trial for murder right now. Dean, who quit the force a few days after killing a Tatiana, shot her in her mother's home while responding to a non-emergency call placed by a neighbor. The neighbor knew a Tatiana's mother was unwell and worried when he saw the front door to the house was open. Dean arrived on the scene and fired through a backyard window, killing a Tatiana in front of her eight-year-old nephew. For eight years now, AAPF and our partners have gathered through our Mother's Network to support the mothers, the sisters, aunts, grandmothers, and families of Black women, girls, and femmes who've lost their lives to police violence across the country. We perform rituals of remembrance for those we've lost. We support connections to community and provide resources for folks affected by this kind of violence. And we demand the life-saving reforms that could protect women like the ones we've lost. We call the movement Say Her Name, and it's turned into a rallying cry that's been heard around the world since we first dreamed it into being in 2014. You may know the hashtag. Perhaps you've used it on social media when Sandra Bland lost her life after being stopped for a traffic infraction or when Breonna Taylor's life was stolen in a home invasion perpetrated by the police. And we hope you're still using it today, like pop star Lizzo did during her acceptance speech at the People's Choice Awards last week. And this is Tamika Palmer. She fights in honor of the memory of her daughter, Breonna Taylor. Say her name! The tragic truth is that Breonna Taylor and Sandra Bland 
are only two of the hundreds of names that we need to keep saying, keep uplifting, because justice for their deaths has not yet been served. When we got together at Union Square in New York City for the very first Say Her Name gathering, it was 2015. We held a vigil, and we designed this ceremony to center the stories of these women's lives, the lives that should have been. We took this approach to get the public to understand that anti-Black violence at the hands of the police is a very real problem for Black women in this country as well as it is for Black men. Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, and Michael Brown became household names after their brutal deaths in 2014. But did you hear about Pearlie Golden, the 93-year-old woman shot five times outside her house in Texas that same year? Do you know the name Michelle Cousseau? She was shot in the heart after Phoenix police officers broke into her home while they were supposed to be doing a wellness check, just like in the case of a Tatiana Jefferson. There are scores of Black women who have died at the hands of police, yet we rarely see them at the forefront of conversations about racist policing practices. With the Say Her Name movement, we counteract this erasure, the erasure that keeps these tragedies out of the public memory, because without remembrance, this painful cycle will only repeat. You know, as a central part of the mission of AAPF, we perform rituals. They are rituals of remembrance, of storytelling, of affirmation. And one ritual that we come back to time and time again is the calling out of the names of those who have been killed by the hands of the police. Michelle Rousseau. Say her name. Michelle Rousseau. Say her name. From an African lens, giving someone a name has cosmological implications, and the importance of naming can never be underrated. Names identify our being. They have power. Our names are not meant for us to use on ourselves, but rather for other people to use on our behalf, for the community to call our names. So although these women, these girls, these femmes may be physically gone, they are still with us because their names persist beyond the here and now. That is the power of names. They transcend time. Say her name. Corinne Yates. Say her name. Corinne Yates. Say her name. If we don't call out the names, it means our silence is conforming to the injustice done to them. But the moment we begin to call their names as individuals, as human beings, we give them power and energy. We recognize them as a part and as an extension of the human community. And wherever they are, they feel acknowledged, affirmed, supported. And at the same time, they can feel the blessedness that they need. To kill a woman is to transform a community. If these 197 names we know of who have been killed, it means that 197 communities have been transformed. But communities and names cannot be buried. They are a dimension of the immortal self. By calling someone by their name, we call their energy. By calling their names, we are reminding ourselves 
that they are still with us. And above all, we are not condoning the injustices done to them with a culture of silence. Those powerful words were spoken by award-winning director and AAPF artist-in-residence, Awoye Tempo. That was during last year's annual Say Her Name ceremony of ritual and remembrance. As Tempo points out, when we don't say the names of women who've been killed, their lives and their memories become expendable, erased, snuffed out of existence, their shed blood wiped clean by our collective disregard. The fact that former officer Aaron Dean is currently on trial and that he's been charged with murder is a rarity. The vast majority of the time, officers responsible for deaths of Black women, women in communities they've sworn to protect, face no consequences for their actions. Police forces are often complicit in the wrongdoing their officers commit. We see police departments close ranks around their colleagues, shifting the blame for these tragedies to their victims in public statements, the media, and in the courtroom. When we don't say their names, we send a message that these women's lives, in fact, don't matter that the continuous shielding of officers from the consequences of their actions can go on, threatening the lives of other sisters, mothers, daughters, and wives. It was about the life of Tanisha Anderson. Of Shelly Fry. Miriam Carey. India Jasmine Kager. India Beattie. Michelle Cousseau. Of Kayla Moore. Of Corinne Gaines. Of Michelle Shirley. When we don't lift up these women who've died, we lose sight of the specific conditions under which Black women lose their lives, conditions that must be changed. In so many instances where police have killed our sisters, simple changes, changes that activists have been demanding for years, could have made a life-saving difference. Like abolishing the practice of sending armed officers on wellness checks, or the practice of hiring officers who know little about the people or the communities that they are policing. Reversing these practices is one of the many actions that could save lives, lives like Atatiana Jefferson's and Michelle Cousseau's. Because too often, innocent calls for help in with cries for mercy as police use aggressive tactics in situations that require common sense and emotional intelligence, not brute force. When we fail to insist on change, we let the lives of Black women everywhere hang in the balance. We advocate for an intersectional gender and race lens when developing policy platforms, those to ensure that solutions to state violence take into active account the lives of all Black people. A stunning new investigation reveals a striking number of young black girls experience police violence. Nonprofit organization, The Marshall Project, dug into six major police departments across the nation and found nearly 4,000 children experienced police violence from 2015 to 2020, but almost 800 of those were black girls, roughly one-fifth of the total. It's a concerning statistic because these often traumatic encounters have long-lasting effects. 
When we create spaces to discuss how patriarchy, misogynoir, homophobia, and transphobia impact Black communities as a whole, like we do with Say Her Name, we improve our ability to talk about all of the ways state violence harms Black people. And we better position ourselves to take action and to move beyond remembrance. We break the cycle of fixating on the spectacle of these tragic deaths without seeking any solutions. We help realize a society where all Black women across our differences are included in how we reconceptualize policing. Every year, throughout the year, but especially on Say Her Name's anniversary on December 14th, we exercise our political power. We honor the legacies of these women, now ancestors, and we hold space for their loved ones. We tell the stories of the lives that should have been. By calling out their names, we are affirming our own selves. We're affirming that part of us did not die. We are also affirming that not every part of that human being is gone because of the power that each name bears. As we call out these names, we call out their communities, we call out their families, and we call out their ancestors, and they are still with us. From the very first Say Her Name vigil, our goal was to provide surviving families with the opportunity to introduce their loved ones to the world. We wanted to shine a light on the joy of their lives, what they meant to their families, and who they were on their way to becoming. We hoped to help them paint a fuller picture of these women who've been stolen, to know them not simply by the worst thing that happened to them, and especially not through the narratives told about them through the media and by the police. We also wanted to give each family the opportunity to share what justice means to them. Atatiana Jefferson's sisters, Amber and Ashley Carr, have been tirelessly advocating for justice for their sister and for their family in the years since Atatiana was shot. Last year, during our annual Mother's Network retreat, they spoke with us about the type of sister, student, aunt, and friend that a Tatiana Jefferson was. They told us about their dreams for her and how losing her affected their entire family. They also told us what they hope to see happen next as their quest for justice continues. In honor of Say Her Name's eighth anniversary, and as we await the outcome of Aaron Dean's trial, we want to share with you a portrait of Atatiana Jefferson. As Amber and Ashley Carr tell it, Atatiana was someone who brought joy to everyone in their family. Yeah. Well, growing up in the house, she was a tomboy, so her typical hairstyle was a ponytail. So my greatest memory will be the time she actually started to allow me to do her hair. Even when she got older and she started to become a little bit more feminine and she would get her hair pressed and we would curl it, you know. So that's my greatest memory of us bonding, you know, by her allowing me to do her hair. A memory I, I always go back to is uh, 
I had called her and I was like, you want to go to the, a Beyonce concert? She was like, yeah, I'm part of the Beehive. I was like, what? You know, because my sister loved all genres of music and things. But I just did not think, you know, she was a beehive, you know, yeah, she was part yeah, of the beehive. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, and I just told her, I said, well, now that I know you like to go to concerts, you about to be my new concert buddy. buddy you yeah. know, that was the plan. Well, although she's the youngest. It's a problem solver. She was the person that we both called when we didn't like each other. I know, and now <laughs> we don't have her to fix everything. Yeah, yes. Now we have to go, go to each other, so. Yeah, she was the middle person, you know? You know, we had to learn that we have to communicate without her. That was our dynamic. If Amber and I had a disagreement. Because we're so much alike. Yes. I would call Tay and mm -hmm. be like, Tay, get your sister. And let me tell you about what your sister did now, you know, something like that. Yeah. And then she'd be like, well, I'm going to go over there and check on her, you know? <laughs> and she'll just show up, you know, mm -hmm. over there. And just to make sure that we was okay. She was extremely headstrong. You know, she knew what she wanted in life and she knew what she didn't want. Mm -hmm. And she had a standard of life where if that's not what I want, I am not doing it. I don't care. I envy that. You know, who who don't like it? I'm not doing it. Yeah, I envy that. When she went to Xavier, everybody kept saying, why are you going to Louisiana? You have never been to the school. You never, you didn't know what the school looked like, but she just knew. That's where I'm going. And she did. She did. She executed that with grace. She knew what she wanted. She knew that she just didn't want to go to any medical school. Mm -hmm. In her head, she was like, I want to go to a Meharry. You know, I want to go to a top line medical school. Mm -hmm. And she didn't want to struggle like she did in undergrad. Her goal was let me save my money so that I can be a fully invested into my medical program. Yep. And all of us understood that. So they were all on that plan that, you know, Tay's going to save her money. We're all going to help her get to her next destination. Atatiana moved back in with her mother so she could save money before chasing her dream of going to medical school. When Amber and Ashley Carr talk about their mother's home, they describe it as a safe haven with their mother at the head of the family. In her home, they always knew they could relax and be themselves. She just, she accepted you for who you were. Very free. You didn't have those worries. Um, we would go to my mom's house. That We already knew that was the plan because she was very non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. She just, she accepted you for who you were. Really, she did. She did. We were 18, that's what my mom, she envisioned when she, we were stair-steppers, so. You have Ashley, and then she waited a while. Mm -hmm. And then my brother is 88, 88. I'm 89, and she's 90. And so we're very close, very, very close. And you know, I'll say this, um, my, my mom named us the A-team because she wanted us to understand that regardless of where we're at in life, mm -hmm. where we're living, or anything like that, um, any type of struggle, we are a team. Mm -hmm. We are a team. In 2019, Amber got sick. The A-team rallied around her as she underwent heart surgery, which, needless to say, was really hard on her body. 
Amber went to rehab after surgery to relearn how to walk and to recover from having a tracheotomy. While she got better, Atatiana and Ashley did all they could to keep the family spirits up, especially since their mom was struggling in the hospital as well. With two ill family members to support, the big priority for everyone was keeping Amber's two kids, Zion and Zayden, with some normalcy while their mom and their grandma were both in care. So for Zayden's birthday, they kept up Amber's tradition of throwing him a birthday bash. Me and Tay took the boys to CC's Pizza, and they loved that. And then we went to an indoor playground area and. I'm the aunt that pays for things and watch. Uh, Tay was the aunt that actually got in and played with them. So the youngest one, he was a little timid because he was small, you know. And Tay got up in that play area with him, showed him how to climb through and everything and slid down the slide. I have a video of that of them sliding down the slide together. And then once he felt, you know, he got the confidence, okay, Tay, and so he was able to go and do it himself. But that's the type of person she was. Tatiana and Ashley held their family down until Amber was well enough to leave the hospital. It would be a long time before Amber returned to good health, but for a few happy days, Amber was out of the hospital, recovering at a family member's home, and the A-team was back together again. But the relief was brief. Amber got out the hospital Wednesday night, Wednesday, Thursday. Mm-hmm. Tatiana was murdered that Friday. So we have been running since before the murder. It's like the Energizer Bunny. You just keep going and going and going and going and going. On the morning of October 12, 2019, a Cross the Street neighbor called 311, which is a non-emergency number, and said that my mother's house doors were open. He knew that my mom had been sick and wanted to know if somebody would just check on them. At 2.25 a.m., Jefferson's neighbor, James Smith, called a non-emergency line asking police to make sure his neighbor was okay. I explained on the call that there wasn't any violence going on. It was simply a concern from a neighbor. People say, well, James, it's not your fault. You're not your fault. (laughs) But I made a call. I made the call because I thought that they were going to do what I called them to do, check on my neighbor. And they didn't do that. The police did not park on the street, didn't do any lighting on the street in front of the house or anything. What they did do is they parked around the corner and approached the house in a, I'll say a call of duty way. Guns were already out. If you go to my mother's house, you see all the exterior doors are in the front of the house. So you can't, if you're in the back of the house, you can't get out. He passed up both doors. The screen doors were closed but the exterior doors were open. All lights were on in the house, never rung a doorbell on both doors. Instead, he passed them up and flashlights through the windows and things of that nature, gets to the back of my mom's house to the gate. The gate is kind of hard to open, so you have to jiggle at it to open it. But the catch of that is a Tatiana's bedroom is literally on the other side of that gate. So 
that night her and Zion was up playing video games as they always do on a Friday night till the sun comes up. That's Tay. She goes, she goes to sleep when the sun comes up. They came in the backyard and I guess she looked out the window and in the same breath, he said, Put your hands up, show me your hands. Show me your hands. And in that breath of saying, show me your hands, he shot through the window. There was never any time to comply. There was never any time to figure out who is this in my backyard. So he was charged with murder. And he was arrested, but then he was bailed out by the police union. So he didn't really spend any time there. He spent no time there. Got in and got out. Officer Aaron Dean's arrest came just hours after he resigned from the police department amidst growing outrage. Tatiana Jefferson's family also held a news conference Monday before Dean's arrest. This is the family's lawyer, Lee Merritt, addressing reporters. I want to go ahead and dispel the myth that this is somehow a one-off, uh, that this was just a bad luck incident from an otherwise sound department. The Fort Worth Police Department is on pace to be one of the deadliest police departments in the United States. They're in need of serious systematic reform. We are asking that the federal government comes in, the Department of Justice comes in and takes a conscious look at the policies and procedures that allowed something like this tragedy to happen. They created a deadly situation and they responded in a way that is not unique to the city of Fort Worth. In the last six months, they've had seven officer-involved deaths. That's more than most nations for a single city in Texas. It represents a serious problem that must be addressed. Tatiana Jefferson is the seventh person since June who's been killed by one of the police department's officers. Her killing comes after white off-duty police officer Amber Geiger was convicted of murder for killing her black nader, Botham Jean, in his own apartment in nearby Dallas. She said she thought it was her apartment. The first thing that I remember was my mom calling me. And she was just really sad. She was like, I need for you to go and pick Zion up from a facility somewhere here in Fort Worth. And I said, a facility? She said, yeah, something happened at the house. Something happened at the house. The first thing I thought, well, where is Tay? And when I said, well, where is Tay? I'm thinking, she said, an altercation. And I'm like, so what, is she in jail or something? She said, no, they're saying she's not here. But for some reason, I got a burst of energy. Like, it was like I just my adrenaline. And I ran into my aunt's room because I was staying with her for a while until I got better and um, told her, hey, something's happening. Mom says, Tay's gone and Zion is at a facility. And that's all I knew until we got to the facility. And when I got to the facility, they're questioning me like I'm a criminal. You know, I'm, I'm the boy's mom, you know, they're questioning me. It was crazy. But then I woke Zion up and he was so happy to see us. And he looked up from when he woke up and he said, the police shot him, take. That's the first thing he said. He was like, the police shot him, take. Everything just stopped, you know. Even my aunt was there, she was just like, what? What are you saying to us? Zion is 11 years old now. 
Last week, he testified in the Aaron Dean trial. Here he is on the stand in front of the court and on live stream in front of the world, bravely sharing the heartbreaking details of what happened when his aunt Tay was killed. He's an 11-year-old boy in a very adult situation, taking the stand at a high-profile murder trial. And the little boy was so effective on the stand, many in the courtroom were brought to tears. Did you see something that happened? I seen her fell on the ground. Did you see anything outside the window? No, sir. You didn't see a man with a badge? No, sir. Did you hear anything before she fell to the ground? No, sir. What happened after she fell to the ground? She started crying again. After that, two police officers came and got me. Did you know what had happened at that point? No, sir. Did you know if your auntie was hurt? Yes, sir. What were you thinking? I was thinking is it a dream. How did you think she was hurt? Because she was crying and just shaking. What happened when the, the two police men came into the bedroom? They seen me and they took they told me to get up and they took me to the back of a police car. After the shooting family members made their way over to the house and found their home, their safe haven, was now a crime scene. The peace and comfort the family could always count on in that house and a person who made it feel like home were both stolen from them forever. We were sitting in the car, you know, with the windows down, talking to the neighbor. I had a cousin in the driver's seat and he found the body cam footage on YouTube. I don't know what made him think to go there and look, but he was like, oh no, this is it. There's a body cam video on YouTube. So I'm watching it and I'm, they're leading up to the house. They're passing up the doors. They're not announcing themselves. They're going in the backyard and within that command, he didn't give her time to respond. And when I heard the gunshot, it's like I freaked out because it became real. It's like, oh my gosh, this really did happen. This is crazy. Ashley got the news that her sister had been killed while she was at work, teaching a class at a community college. She remembers her phone suddenly blowing up with calls. I called. She kept blowing on my phone. I'm like, why is she calling me? It's eight something in the morning. You know, I don't understand. So I answered the second time, and she says, "You need to get here. You need to get here. Something has happened at the house. You need to come home now." I'm like, "Something happened at the house." So the first thing I do, I call Tay. She not answering her phone. That's not like take. She always answers my phone calls. You know, I don't know what this is about. I call Zion because he also answers all the time. Didn't answer. So I'm like, okay, what is going on? I call my mother and she says, I want you to listen to the chief of police. And I said, listen to him for what? And so they start trying to explain what happened. And I'm still confused because I know my sister has uh, concealed handguns. And so in my head, I'm like, did she shoot somebody? And I was like, no, she didn't do anything wrong. 
At first, Fort Worth police shared photos of Jefferson's gun, but later called that a mistake. She was, um, you know, she was killed there. And I was like, what? And then my mom started screaming, said they killed my baby. And I'm that, it was like a chill. I didn't know what to do. I, I literally froze. And remember, all this conversation is happening in front of my Saturday class. I didn't step out the room or anything. I'm literally standing in front of the class getting all this information. It was crazy. It was extremely crazy. It was so surreal. And it was soon after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to go home. And everything started happening. People started calling. People started sending us the body cam footage. I had to call my brother and I told him, now this is not my emotions about the situation that I'm about to tell you, but I'm gonna tell you how it was told to me. And I had to tell my brother that our sister was killed. He's in the active military. He's out serving our country. He's been doing that since the age of 19. And he had to literally leave to come get to our mom's hospital room. It's so surreal. It's so surreal. It's so many people in there. People we don't know yeah. is in there. There is no shield on us. And I just could not believe the nurses was allowing it, so we finally told them, uh-uh, mm -hmm. none of this, and no TV. Don't we had to TV. monitor our mom's Because TV. anywhere you went, even when you drove down the street, and you can, just like in New York, and you see bars with televisions, that's all you saw because it was local. So that's all you saw. Everywhere you turn, that's all you saw. And you know, she was in the hospital room. Mm. She felt helpless, mm -hmm. but she couldn't get out mm -hmm. and fight for her baby. When my mom finally got out the hospital, she went home. A week later. Shoot, not even a week. She was gone. Our mother died in that January. Every day, she would just go and stand in that room. Mm -hmm. And I tried my best, because I did not want her to see the blood on the floor. I didn't want her to see none of that. Because crazy thing about it, I didn't even know, these things I didn't know, if you leave it there too long, it can get into your foundation of your house. Mm -hmm. And then you have to do extremely detailed cleaning that costs an arm and a leg that nobody's paying for. They told us that's for the state to pay for. First, we need to file a claim on our insurance, on our homeowners. And then if that didn't work, you know, then whatever they didn't pay for, they will think about paying the state. This we is how they've been this whole... The whole time. They didn't pay for the window. We had to replace everything we on our own. We had to replace everything. This is something we hear often from the women of the Mothers Network. Many have unimaginable stories about how they were treated by the state in the wake of their loved one's killing. Gina Best, the mother of India Kager, the innocent woman shot and killed by police with her infant son in the car, later got a bill from the state of Virginia. The state scrapped her daughter's car because it was deemed a biohazard thanks to the carnage the shooting left behind and they made Gina pay for its disposal. Yes, you heard that right. The mother had to pay for the disposal of the car that the police 
shot her daughter in. Nothing sends a clearer message about the level of disregard for Black women's lives than instances like these, where there's no support for family members of victims, and the burden to navigate everything from crime scene cleanup to managing their grief to learning about the court processes, it's all left up to them to handle in their shocked and heartbroken state. The family members of women who've been killed have repeatedly called for organizations to provide support and services to people who've been impacted by police brutality. The psychological toll of experiences like these claim many victims. It's an enormous burden to bear. They shouldn't have to do it at all. But at the very least, they shouldn't have to do it alone. My mom was really adamant about mental health. And at the time, I used to, I didn't take mental health as serious as I should have. And I never understood, I was like, girl, I just brush her off and was like, girl, you just pray about it. Because we were raised in church. And you know, back in the day, that's what they told you. Just pray about it, give it to God, and he'll work it out. But now it's like a light bulb. And you know, they said that light bulb comes on at a certain age. I don't think it's a certain age. I think light bulbs come on when parents are gone. All right, when you, when you have to experience different things, the more yeah. you experience, you realize, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what I'm mad about. Yeah that I don't get to tell my mother. She was right. She was right. She was so right. She was so right about humans. That was a pride of my mother's. She finally got a home built where her kids had a place to go to feel safe. And to know that the place you built for your children to feel safe is the same place your child got killed. That's heartening. That's extremely hard. How do you live through that? I do say I'm mad. I I was mad at my mother because she left. She had three other children here. But to lose your child in your house, that's a lot. That's a lot to deal with. So I can't even be mad at her. I have to be strong through all this. I got to be her legs. I got to be her arms. I got to be her voice through all of this. It was... As Amber said, it was an adrenaline rush. People said, well, you know, you're strong. You know, you went through it. I wasn't here. This, the flesh was here. But being honest, that wasn't me. And when she died, she actually had on a Tatiana shirt mm-hmm. with her face on it. So when we came in and the first thing I see is her on the floor, you know, I guess after they tried everything that they could do, I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I went crazy. I laid on the ground with her, on the floor with her. I just, they wanted me to get out of there, but I I couldn't, I couldn't, her body was still warm. So I just laid there. To me, she wasn't dead, you know? She was just sleeping. And now the matriarch is gone. Yeah. And we're trying to figure out, well, what do we do, you know, when we don't have a mom or have guidance? But there's no rules to this. There's no. no rule book. There was nothing that you said, okay, you come out day one, you got to do this. Is what you this do. is what you do. No step by step. So we're just trying to figure it out. We're, that's, that's literally what we're doing. The Carr sisters' lived experience with the justice system make them uniquely equipped advocates and community leaders, sharing the lessons they've learned in this unending nightmare that they've had with the state. 
These lessons should be uplifted as we think about how to help these families shattered by state violence and how to stop state violence against Black women altogether. So what we're learning is that laws matter. Yeah. And we're also learning that local elections matter. Yeah. So we definitely push voter registration. Yeah. We definitely push local elections and making sure that the people we know are in the know of when it is and who's running and things of that nature. Because we have to learn that the DA is our attorney. We don't get to pick who gets to fight for Tatiana. The city has chosen that person. So you asked us, what have we done for justice? And everything that we have done was brought up in court. We can't do protesting because what we learned is that everything that we do Mm-hmm. will be used against us mm-hmm. in the court of law. So we had the gag order. So our goal was we wanted to uplift a Tatiana. Memorialize her. Talk about her legacy, mm-hmm. how wonderful she was, how much an impact she was to the community, to our family and things. So we done t- parades community outreach. We started a nonprofit in her name called the Tatiana Project, where we bring STEAM exposure to urban youth. We're about to do our second year of summer camp, where the kids will be building computers on their own and learning about coding. Our goal is to do what Tay was doing the night she was murdered, exposing youth to STEAM. Zion wanted to be a YouTuber because he liked to watch people play games. And Tay was like, well, if you like to watch people play games on YouTube, you could be the one that Mm -hmm. they watched. She was getting him ready, Mm -hmm. you know, to give him that exposure. If that's what you want to do, okay, let's, here's the equipment, let's be great at that. Mm -hmm. So we took that moment and we just going to expand on the greatness of a Tatiana. You know, we want to do a Tatiana book scholarship Mm -hmm. because that was one thing that we learned talking to people who went to school with her is that Tatiana had issues getting books Mm -hmm. when she was in college. One of her college roommates told us that uh, they had a fire drill in the dorms and everybody's out and Tay is not out the building. Nope. And they're like trying to figure out, well, where is she? Where is she? Tay comes downstairs. She got all her books with her. And she said, well, it's a drill. So I was trying to see how long it was going to take me to get all my books if it was a real fire. She said, because I can't, you know, I got to have my books. I got to have my books. I got to have my books. So that was just like how she was. You know, she was, you know, okay, we drilling? All right, cool. I'm going to drill too, you know? I love her, I miss her so, so, so much. We've had a street renaming. Mm -hmm. So the whole block where my mom's house is, is memorialized, so it's a Tatiana Jefferson Parkway. Uh, My mom's house now is officially the Tatiana Project headquarters. So yeah, we we have a lot of plans for the Tatiana Project and to live out of Tatiana's legacy because this is a lifelong, and once we're gone, we want Zion and Zayden and all of their cousins and all of the people that we bring. We want this to keep going like forever and ever, as long as it can. Michelle Crusoe. Say her name. Michelle Crusoe. Say her name. Career.
With the Say Her Name campaign and the Mother's Network, we join the Carr sisters and so many others in their mission to keep the memories of their loved ones alive. With unwavering determination, each year we hold space for sharing the joy of remembering their lives and the grief that came with their deaths. We also continue to support survivors navigating complex systems that so rarely show them mercy when they need it the most. And we imagine a future where this current reality, the reality we now live in, has become a thing of the past. This is work done in community. It was uplifting to hear Amber and Ashley reflect on the reasons they returned to the Mother's Network and to hear them talk about the ways that solidarity with other Black women who understand their pain has helped them build strength for the road ahead. We've never gotten help without an agenda. Agenda. You know, we're thinking, you felt I hurt as well. You want to come in, you know, and support. But all the while, they were just using us for, you know, to better their platform. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen here. And it's a relief. Mm -hmm. To know that I literally have people who didn't grow up with me, who wasn't there for the whole thing, um, you know, whole entire life, but they still want to be there for us and genuinely do it. There's times where, you know, I can't think of what help I need. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're like, well, I think you might need this. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that would, you know. And you want to be modest because you don't want to really say what you need help with. But then they already know. They already know. They already know. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely learning to reach out and be like, okay, well, this is my issue right now. And even if they can't help, they'll still give you some advice and a direction of how to get where I needed to go. Mm -hmm. So we're extremely grateful for that. For certain. Because they said, we were brought up, you know, you don't walk around asking, asking people for stuff, for stuff you know, yeah. that, that shows that you're in a lack mode. But also, we do need to ask. Because mm-hmm. we yep. can't do it all by ourselves. Mm-hmm. If that's the theme of my life, I cannot do it all by myself. Special thanks to Amber and Ashley Carr for sharing their story with us and for entrusting us to hold them. We at the African American Policy Forum are closely following the Aaron Dean trial, as are our friends and partners. We hope this moment will remind the nation of the violence Black women endure that so often goes without justice, without notice, and without protest. We also hope that it will provide important fodder in the work to enact reforms that will make justice in these moments the rule and not the exception that it all too often is. For the eighth year, we perform our ceremony of remembrance at this year's Say Her Name anniversary in New York City, and we invite you to join us in remembering the lives that should have been. Information on how to access the event's live stream is in the show notes. 
Join us for poetry, song, and rituals of remembrance for supporters in the room and around the world to take part in. Learn more about the issue of police violence against Black women on the Say Her Name section of AAPF's website. It has lots of resources to guide you, including our original Say Her Name report, a history of the movement, and our 5 by 5 call to action. It gives you a roadmap for learning more about these issues in five minutes, five days, or five weeks. We encourage you to watch the live stream of Aaron Dean's trial and raise your voice on social media about the urgent need for justice and support for Tatiana's family. Our Patreon subscribers will have access to a video version of the interview with Amber and Ashley Carr. Consider subscribing if you don't already. We hope you'll join us in uplifting the Say Her Name campaign in conversations with friends and with family, at the dinner table, at the office online, wherever else you can help spread the word. Participate in this essential conversation. Please join us. Say Her Name. This episode of Intersectionality Matters was produced by senior producer Nicole Edwards with support from Rebecca Sheckman, Kevin Minofu, and Alex Van Bima. Mixing by Sean Dunham. The Say Her Name, Hell You Talking About song is by Janelle Monet. To support our show, subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw. We'll be back soon. <laughs>